Hello and welcome to the 16th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Friday the 5th of July 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we begin the long and enjoyable task of deciphering Chapter 6, Unity in Diversity. This week I have Mason Kerr to thank who's going to be helping me with some of the editing for the shows. If you'd like to help out and fancy a triad audio editing, drop me a line. And if you'd like to help keep the show afloat, you can also join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month, which works out $1 an episode. We'll be voting on the next reading group series in the coming days, so it's a good time to sign up. I've also got a great Patreon-only episode in the works, which will hopefully be out in the not-too-distant future. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel and make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. We start off with the nice insult of the returning C. Derek Varn. We have a mildly full panel here today. We're welcoming back De Maestra himself, uh, Derek Varn. How's it going? Oh okay. my fucking god! <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you know there's a lot of Shots people. Fired. I am Red the Master, which is which is uh, not me. I meant the master. Oh, sorry, I meant the master. That's me mixing yeah. up my language. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh sure my god! <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> how are you, Derek? Tom Collins over there. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I mean, you know, things are a little crazy here in Derricktown, but it's, um, it's a nice springish day in Utah and so much that we have spring. I've been reading McNair and we're gonna talk about it. And, um, it's nice to be back. And, you know, though, I kind of remember the days where like, you could, you couldn't bat people off talking about McNair. What happened to everybody? Mm, I wonder. What did happen? I think I think they started to not like the conversations that we had based on our uh, reflections on, in real life. I guess they were they were supposing would be something a little less critical. I don't know what happened. Also, people drop out when you do these goddamn readings. <laughs> it's only like Byron and Lexi, like from the TSSI that got there. You know, we started yeah, we, about forty-eight we had, people. We had more people doing value theory. Like, think about that. Value theory? You know how few Marxists actually give a shit about value theory? There's like six. You know? Yeah, I know. Like, it's, it's And we all hang out together and everybody makes <laughs> fun of us for caring about value theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a loser. What are, you, what are you spending all your time at the British Library or something? <laughs> well, who else? Lexi, say hello. I know you've, t- you've, butted in, you've butted in already, but say hello anyway. I have. I have. I'm just batting down every wall. Hi there. It's Lexi. Just, just chilling. Arf, arf. And, uh, and finally, <laughs> not least, we've got Sophie. You might hear Sophie's laughter. How are you? Hi, I'm actually polite and wait to be introduced to say hi. Oh, damn sorry. <laughs> that's, that's the, down the gauntlet. Sorry, baby. That's the difference between uh, <laughs> you and Lexi. You got manners. Right. So, so anarchists right. are more well behaved. All right. Who, who would have know. thought? Wait, are you calling <laughs> me an anarchist, Derek? We're no, no. this morning. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Former <laughs> anarchist. I will. I will re- <laughs> reform post anarchist Sophie. <laughs> I don't know if I like that any better. TBH. <laughs> okay, let's see if we can actually jump into this 
chapter. Last week we did chapter five, which was the communist strategy and the party form, which was kind of getting into the reason behind the splits and why McNair thought it was necessary in 1917 to 20 or whatever you want to call it. So this week we're going to get into unity in diversity, which kind of talks about the political challenges facing the radical left, well, the communists, after that split and what it means for our strategy today, according to McNair. Anybody have any initial thoughts before we get going? This is dense because now not only do you, I mean, like, I feel like you have to know like the history of the German socialist and communist parties, the history of the Italian, the history of the British Labour Party, the history of my mom. I mean, like, it's it's kind of all in here. This is probably the densest chapter we have. He does an interesting little commentary on the 21 conditions that he, he's basically making good on an earlier promise that we should be reading these early Bolshevik documents critically. And on the one hand, I think that his grasp of like what actually happened in history is so good. But strangely, he finds himself recapitulating things. And I think we'll, we'll get into this. That first, that like second paragraph here where he's talking about the difference between the national split around World War I and then like this whole organizational ideological split. Like, I don't know if I've ever, that was put so succinctly to me that there are these two debates that, I mean, he, I think he says it elsewhere, but he's, that Lenin mashes them together in a way that is frankly confusing and it doesn't end up helping. But the reason that he does it is explained also in this chapter. Like the reason that Lenin saw these two things as one thing when McNair is classically whipping up that analytical knife and cutting shit up. And much like someone that wields a good analytical knife doesn't necessarily come to the conclusions that you think from analyzing. So, Derek, do you want to start reading those two? What, seeing that you're back in the show, let's let you take those first two ones nice and not too brisk. With the creation of the common turn, the national split, which the 1914 to 1918 war had caused in a broad United Socialist movement was replaced by an organizational ideological split, which affected the workers' parties in most countries. But with this split, the problem of the working class political unity and action did not go away because it was deeply rooted in the nature of the movement. The policy or tactic of the United Class Front was the Comintern's effort to tackle this problem. Down to the 1920, the Comintern's leaders were struggling for a clear and unambiguous split in the workers' movement. This split was necessary in order to escape the dominion of the movement by the right and the fudges of the center, which supported the domination of the right. But as soon as the split came to the working class's objective need for unity reasserted itself, the Comintern was now forced to try to find a way of addressing the need for unity without, again, subordinating the movement to the right. Okay, so he's going to talk here about like this United Front strategy. Now, we've talked about these two, the difference between the popular and the United Front. The United Front is essentially where you will back other parties on the left around a policy, but you won't join them in a coalition or you won't become a part of their party. And you're able to maintain your your unique voice, and but you're able to help with getting policies through that will aid the working class. So after all these splits, it's kind of like a way of undoing the split without ending up in the same party, you know, because this idea of uniting the working class, even if not in the one party, is that a good way to describe it? 
Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a that's a pretty fair way to 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 deal with it. I mean, the the contrast with the popular front is that you are willing to enter into, if not coalitions, outright parties. Another difference is popular front will you will lie, you will lie um, about your actual position to do that. And united front, you don't ever do that. You you don't strategically mislead. There's also another really important difference between the two. And the United Front is a workers or, or socialist effort. It's not a broad left progressive unity that draws in the progressive bourgeoisie as well. Uh, where the popular front is, you know, especially in the context of anti-fascism, explicitly also a pact with progressive liberals against fascism. Now, what's interesting about this is we normally think of this as a, uh, a Marxist-Leninist slash Stalinist versus Trotskyist debate. But it's also time stamped in the common turn. Even the quote unquote Stalinist or proto Stalinist in the 1920s and very early 30s adopted United Front tactics. It wasn't just a Trotskyist thing. But by the time you get to right before World War II, that's a clear division between the groups. And it, it, it really matters politically when you like get into China and stuff. So. But the, I, it's an interesting thing because I think a lot of people misread this as purely an ideological debate between Trotskyists and Marxist, Leninist, Stalinist, and it's it's actually a shift in common turn strategy as well, where the Trotskyists are just her, holding to an earlier common turn line. Well, That's, Trotsky was there for the United Front turn too, wasn't it? Was he not? Yeah, he, he was. was. Yeah, certainly. But but they didn't give it. I mean, this is another thing. Like they didn't totally drop. United Front stuff in the common turn when they booted Trotsky out. Because if you like, if you study like, for example, Hammer and Ho or the, the story of like the Marxist Leninist in the South of the United States and what they did in building the civil rights movement, they were actually using a lot of United Front stuff. And then they get betrayed by the popular front. And again, this is just, if you know the history of, of how this plays out in different places, the, the precise meaning of this within this debate, it, it becomes a lot less clearly just reified ideological opinions between groups and also like literal differences in historical strategies that kind of is interesting to think about why they changed. So I, I just wanted to point out that this is not a, like an antiquarian debate between Trotskyists and Stalinists, that there's something else going yeah. on here. It would, it, would, it would almost be more accurate to call it like a, Trotskyist civil war, like an intra-Trotskyist kind of thing. And I know he's not trying to be a Trotskyist, but we'll, we'll get into why I might say that. So he's going to get into here first talking about what happened in the British Labour Party in the just after World War One and how the Communist Party were going to enter into it. But like what what McNair is making the point here is that even when we're in the middle of doing the splits, Lenin basically argued for. A, oh, let's read it here. In reality, the seat, the Communist Party was not allowed to affiliate an individual communist membership in the Labour Party was from a very early stage semi-legal. The argument nonetheless shows that even at a time when the Comintern's leadership was still mainly concerned to complete the split with the centrists, they were willing to fight for participation of communists in a broad unity of the workers' movement, provided that the communists retained liberty of agitation. It seems likely to me that uh, imagine that you imagine this idea that you would affiliate yourself as the Communist Party to the Labour Party and you keep slagging everybody off in the Labour Party. They are just going to kick you out. Like there's no two ways about it. Imagine <laughs> like 
like being in a football team or a basketball team and like saying like you i want freedom of like to be able to slag the coach's decisions off to his face <laughs> and then like what's he going to do he's going to drop you he's going to kick you off the team it's like it's I mean, not I think that obvious team, that tactic could never work i don't know maybe i'm being naive about british politics or something but i feel like there's at least a little bit more of a democratic spirit in the labor party than a football team <laughs> the football team is quite hierarchical i wouldn't say so i wouldn't say wow. that. really no. well, yeah. okay. what i would say in response to all this is that we don't need to imagine we can look at what the British Labour Party is doing to people that are very gentle internal opposition, essentially. Like, yes, we know that like Corbyn is is going hard after that like third way kind of laborism, but he's very spirit of 45. He's really a very gentle critic. And if they had their way, they would drive him out of the party for sure. The fact of the matter is for right now that he's holding on to the good graces because he's in opposition. But I, I think that this is something that's possible within limits. And those limits are, oh, I mean, th this is where you get into, you know, the communist disdain to do, uh, conceal their views. How much do you have to conceal your views in order to, you know, be honest about what British socialism was and the spirit of 45 was as being like a, you know, like a pact with the British bourgeoisie and not like how do you how do you really do something like that? How do you be as as ruthlessly critical as you need to be as a communist? I, I I think like even if you can make good on this principle, there's still a problem. I tend to think that this principle is a little more practicable than you, Tom. I think you can get get away with this. I actually think you probably could as a person easier than you can as a faction, and that's that's something you really have to think about. Like even in the Democratic Party, you can have your three or four shit throwers. Right. As long as they vote the right way when when party calls for a vote, you can look at the relationship with Alatasia Garcia Cortez or Omar, um, Ilian Omar and, and the Democrats. They're not really a problem for the Democrats. But if you had a, an organized faction around them, a real one, not, you know, like three people who kind of right. sort of have mild DSA support, that would be treated very differently. And we've seen yeah, that in the past. If there was a hundred representative or fifty or seventy in the House of Representatives in in America that were like radical Democrats, they'd be the party would split, wouldn't it? And they get kicked out. I don't know. They get kicked what out they, because because of the structure of the parties in the United States are way weaker, more nebulous. But they would be. What well, what would happen is honestly, the moneyed interest within the the Democratic Party would would primary them to to death. Would we'll also just do targeted character assassination and try to ruin yeah, their and then they and then they and then they primary them until they run out of money. I mean, we've seen that happen before. So I mean, they 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 wouldn't be expelled in the way you can expel people from a party in British politics, where it's a little bit more explicit. But it would effectively be the same thing. I, and I do think we have you know in in U.S. history we saw this once, <laughs> you know, uh, one time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was the radical end of the Whigs. And they did get kind of pushed out. Then the Whigs dissolved. And then they were the core of the radical end of the Democratic Party. And then they were pretty much pushed out, too, over time, or marginalized to the point where it didn't matter. And then you see this again from the right and the Democrats with the Dixiecrats. And they just flip sides. They're, they're, they're marginalized to the point they flip sides and join the Republicans. Well, I was going to say, I can think of a few more uh, examples in American history. The um, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, 
there was the candidacy of uh, McGovern. There's a bunch of the, the new left people that entered the Democrats after, like, during the Vietnam, after the Vietnam War. There was a lot but, of, like, de, de facto sidelining. And those that they couldn't Borg in, that, that couldn't be added to the distinctiveness of the Democratic Party collective, they were pretty ruthless in getting rid of. Yeah, I mean, they didn't kick, again, like, so this is, also, there's no place, there's only two parties in America, really. So there's no place for them to really go. What what you do is you you in the United States you keep them in but you just you neuter them to the point where you've effectively kicked them out. I mean that was true from the Govan Coalition. That was true for a lot of. If you really want to see this in the U.S., mm-hmm. there's a lot of like state breakoff parties. Uh, there's one in Vermont and stuff like that where there have been official factions that have more or less either broken from the Democrats because they were chased out, but still are functionally Democrats. <laughs> They just don't have a, you know, they don't have any national institutional representation anymore because of it. Or you have been just sidelined to the point where you're in the party technically, but you can't do anything. So it doesn't matter. In fact, if they kicked you out, you'd probably be more useful. And one or two people like that is actually good for the Democrats because it gives them ideological cover. It can keep a lot of people who are dissatisfied with the mainline of the party in it. I mean, I, I mean, I honestly, that's one of my criticisms of the DSA is they talk into the both, they talk out of both ends of their mouth about this relationship to the Democrats where really I'm like, yeah, but you, you can bring your people in and they, they can actually be ide- like, in some ways, Alexandria Otasio-Cortez is ideological cover for Nancy Pelosi, even if she doesn't need to be. Also, because most of the opposition to Pelosi is going to come from the right. And so like, what's going to happen is our Tasha Cortez is going to have to sit on her hands on anything that could and leadership. We've already seen this happen. I think it was I, even went as far as to say she voted for Pelosi because Pelosi was the most left-wing candidate she, you can get to be the head of the democratic party. Yeah. She said that. And she's, yeah, she, was, she was probably she, right. She's right. That's, that's the thing. I, I just like to point out that uh, our AOC's boyfriend is red hair, a beard, not great looking. And all I'm just saying here is that I have a chance, ladies and gentlemen. I have a chance. <laughs> Sounds like you've been on Twitter, Tom. It's really interesting to, to talk about these things in terms of like aggregate exclusion or whatever. And maybe it points to how different American politics can be from the politics that he's talking about. But I really wonder how different it is at the end of the day. Well, I, I also wonder if, like, part of it's the structure is massively different, but the effect is the same. Because I, I, the other thing in America, we've never had political parties with mass bases that were actually required any real commitment to them other than kind of a vague tribal identity. The political parties in the United States have not run, like, entire social services and stuff um, separate no. from the government the way political parties in Europe no. traditionally have. There's a whole history about what we mean by party that is just massively different in the U.S. than it is in Europe. And I, I think that point's often missed. I think that's exaggerated, though, about Europe. Like, they might have done for a while in Germany. They don't anywhere in Europe really now, bar maybe Syriza or somewhere. It's not like people experience their parties like that. I don't think it's that not different. Anymore. I think at I think at times it might have been different, but... You know, yeah, yeah. Well, I agree with you now. I mean, like, I, like the the difference between the Tories and Labour is not is not that much different than the difference between Republicans and Democrats. Like, that's totally true. But their history is different. 
one of the things that fascinates me, I, I, I actually would like to hear McNair's opinion on, is the Americanization of, of British politics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. B- because I don't think that's that that's been discussed, but there definitely is a trend that I've even heard people like at the fucking Economist talk about about how the distinction between um, British politics and American politics seems to get smaller and smaller each go around, um, even though the governmental structures are entirely different. Okay, well, let, let's move on. Let, let, let's just try and make some uh, headway here. He just points out that the, U, the United Front was turn was animated by the fact that over the course of 1921, it became clear that the split had not purged the movement, but on the contrary, the Social Democrats of the right and centre retained mass support in the working class. This is actually important, and it's covered up by Stalinist uh, hagiography a lot, but like... The Communist parties actually were were not super popular with the working class. Yeah. That you know, the, the the working class membership, the membership of, for example, the German Communist Party was largely lumpen. Which, when your theories of fascism come up, but I mean, I'm literally like, yeah, yeah, and uh, like, but Trotskyist, you know, always use that lumpen and petty bourgeois definition of fascism, but like. The support for the for like Luxembourg's party was largely amongst the uh, maybe not lump isn't the right word because they weren't necessarily criminals but it was the unemployed. Is that not so, the same thing? Is it is it not a crime to be unemployed? It was yeah, <laughs> it depends. I mean the the the, the, the problem with lump is it's an under theorized category, but like in either direction, pro or anti. The 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 issue here I think is pretty clear is that like the, the Communist Party didn't get mass worker support. It had some. In in Europe, in, in Germany in particular, it never seemed to do so. And that I mean that's kind of why it was so easy for the Freikorps to just kill it. So this is like a, a, a this is like a big problem, you know, once you realize that you have a workers' movement that, you know, the right wing that's loyal to the state and the market is is involved and they're like, you know, they're gonna call the shots and you need to split off to form some kind of independent workers' authority. And then you go and do it, and the work don't follow you. Now what? Then you're in trouble. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that's the history that uh, McNair is pointing to here, though. That is what happened. Lexi, do you want to have a read of those two little paragraphs? Absolutely. So the, the Executive Committee of the Comintern in December 1921 adopted the theses on the United Front. They begin, theses one and two, with the reassertion of the actuality of the revolution in the form of a foreshortened perspective of economic crisis and war. Sick burn. Very dense, very, very, very quick jab moving on. They then assert, theses three through four, that while a section of the most advanced workers had been won to place confidence in the communists, the advance of the class struggle had brought more backward layers into activity, and these were the source of the instinctive demand for unity. This analysis makes the problem correspond to the situation in Russia in February 1917. The Bolsheviks had obtained a majority of the existing organized workers, but the outbreak of revolution brought onto the stage broad masses for whom Menshevik ideas were more attractive. The same dynamic was visible in Portugal in the 70s. The Communist Party had been the majority in the repressed workers' movement under the Salazar-Gaetano dictatorship, but the advance of the mass movement allowed rapid and dramatic growth of the Socialist Party. However, as an analysis of the situation in 1921, it was false. After this split, the Communist parties became the minority in most of these countries. 
So this is like a major problem with this idea of, of that split being correct. Are, are we going to face imperialist wars which will totally destroy an SPD type party by exposing the right and the left? Is this fear of the right less stated now because, because God damn it, now we've got nuclear bombs? Oh, yeah, well, th- there's that. I mean, there's there's a whole lot of stuff in, tied up in this. I mean, like I said last time, dealing with the fact that the Bolshevik Revolution sort of predicated on the war that it was trying to prevent happen. This also gets you into some deep areas where it's it, it's profoundly uncomfortable, where you're, where you, I guess, predicting that the war is going to start out in your favor, the crisis is going to start out in your favor doesn't happen there either. That's not implicit in the strategy, though. I mean, in the strategy, it seems to be like we have to reunify because the split didn't really work. But if we reunify separately, we can maintain our identity. I mean, Lexi, doesn't it seem to you like this Like this is something that Trotskyists don't actually address when, when they talk about the popular front? It's one of the reasons why the popular front was popular is it hid this problem, whereas uh, the United Front strategy actually called attention to it. Well, and that's the slide that he'll describe throughout the chapter, where I don't think he says it quite like this, but the United Front sort of becomes like a, not exactly a popular front, but it develops all the same things other than literally partnering up with the bourgeoisie. It gives you all the same kind of like bad effects of when you make like submit yourself to a right-wing coalition. Yeah, so you still get pulled to the right, but... You also point out that you're you're not the majority party, <laughs> and I mean, like it actually the way McNair describes it sounds like the, it ends up being the worst of both worlds, and that like you're still pulled along to the right, but your fractiousness and your and your tininess is pointed out. That's not good. <laughs> but he's committed to this, you know. He thinks that it's actually important to to participate and to disdain to conceal your views you know to really like fucking lay into them if, if you can't lay into them you can't join if you you just you just shouldn't be a part of it if you can't be a part of it and make the fucking galaxy brain you know scientific socialist marxist critique that anyone that does quote practical politics quote you know snarfs at because they're all like deep in their hearts like Sorellians about these things they feel like it's all myth there's no science Right, and they also feel like it's all polit- it's all politically determined, not economically determined, because economism is a sin, but political determinism isn't, even though right. they're functionally the same thing. But the truth is that they just like split apart from the workers. They never had the majority. It's not like they developed parasites. They're just like kind of lying. I I remember hearing that like, and I don't know. I heard this during like sectlet life. So if this is pamphlet brain, let me know. But um, that Bolshevik and Menshevik are literally mean, respectively, uh, majority and minority. Yeah, and that these faction names come from a time where there was like an unusually strong Bolshevik vote. And so it was kind of bullshit, <laughs> like that they called themselves the majority because they're habitually not in the majority <laughs> when these like results came in. Yeah, you're actually kind of kind of correct. And also... Even in the case of like of Russia in like 1912, the Bolsheviks generally were not the majority. So the name was almost aspirational. And Menshevik right. was kind of a slur that they used. <laughs> so like... Right. And then they wrote the history book. 
I mean, it, it's kind of like the moral. Ma- God, I'm gonna get in so much trouble for this comparison. Let's but, do uh, this shit. It's like it's like the moral majority, except yeah. but but all red. Uh, mm. That whole concept of the silent majority and the the way of you know wielding this like voicelessness, you know, mm. that you can kind of impose onto like a shape onto it. Ghost um, populism is always popular because it doesn't have to be popular. You, you, you never know, have to yeah. check the general will. Yeah, you don't have to prove that the general will is the general will. I mean, that's – I'm going to sound like a libertarian talking about this, but I actually, whenever I hear the voice of the people, I'm like, well, if the people were saying that, you wouldn't have to say it. So you off protest too much, I guess. And that's kind of whenever you hear this majority-minority talk. It's, it's, it's pretty telling. I wanted to skip back around 50 pages to one sentence here that I think is interesting. It's about preparing for defeatism by the mm-hmm. World War One. Advocates of the strategy of patients could have prepared the workers' movement and the society as a whole for the fact that this question would in future be posed. They chose not to. So is there a case then to be made for like staying with the right and prepare them for a defeatist strategy? So the counter-thesis is instead of splitting... I mean, because another thing that's in that first sentence in the beginning of this paragraph is to point out the national splits were not originally ideological. And you and like um, even when you look at like who sided with Kowski and who was opposed to the war and who was for it, it doesn't actually break down to the left right split within the socialist. But it becomes an actual organizational ideological one. There maybe is an argument for just trying to, I don't know, stay all together in one brig tent party, even if it means dealing with the rightists and just actually trying to win within that context as opposed to splitting all the time. I mean, it, it's almost impossible to, to even imagine what that would look like because there's also a, a bunch of other stuff that that maybe prevents or, sub, or sublates because if you don't, if you don't have the SPD splitting, to the right, you also won't have its right splitting from it and becoming the core of the left wing of Nazism. But then, then all that jingoism stays within the socialist movement. So the national mm-hmm. split may have still happened. Like there's a tension there between what would make sense nationally and what makes sense internationally that neither one of these things really totally fixes. I don't think it's one of those situations where you're damned if you do and you, you're damned if you don't in the specific context of the split of the SPD because. If you don't split, the right will constantly hold the ability to veto any revolutionary politics. I get where you're going with Tom, but and I and I see why you think that. Not even that you think that, but why you would ask that. But but like if the SPD, the the leading factions, like if they, they weren't drinking violets, they were revolutionaries. Could one imagine a shift of all of these momentum types into the party in England now? Uh, and Jeremy Corbyn and these Novara Media and Leftcom type in there could it turn it into a national radical revolutionary with a right in it? Our, 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 I guess the question is with the right split itself, and I don't know the answer to that. The, in bourgeois politics, so revolutionary bourgeois politics, and here the United States actually is a help. The right did split. And in, I guess in the terms of the British revolutions, not in the socialist ones, but in the bourgeois ones, like in the Glorious Revolution, the right split off and became a suppressive force. So 
I, I guess this the guess the question is is the split even avoidable because if you don't do it the other side does. Now it might be better if the other I, side I, I does think... it. Like it might actually be better for the right to split because then you look like you are truer to the working class supporters than the other side. So maybe that's actually the right way to go. I don't know. I really don't know. The thing is, like, if you look at, say, what's going on in, say, the Labour Party in Britain now, the right are splitting from it, but splitting from a point of weakness. So they're going to fall on their ass, but the party will stay dominant, and these little movements won't won't work. But the idea is, like, could you get control of a big party? seems to be, like, a key point towards, like, is the DSA strategy right, even though, like, they might be doing it all back arse ways? But is that strategy correct? If you're doing it knowing that you want to turn it extremely radical. If the party was truly democratic, it might work. But it's not. But it's not. And we've already admitted that even in the case of British politics. So it's like, yeah. I don't you know, know. It's not that long ago that, say, the British party was, was gone to the left party. Like, it's only like, was it Michael Fulton in 1980? That's the last time that the actual left of the British part of the Labour Party were in charge. In the Labour Party in England, it's been possible to get kind of actual democratic socialists into the leadership. Yeah, um, that's, that, right. that's, that's, that's 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 true, a, and it's yeah. not true in the United States. I mean, like not I, the United States, like, structurally different in the United States. But like, so this book, you know, if we're talking strategy. You know, we have to understand structures because, you know, strategies are dependent on the terrain and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of debate and wondering whether the split from the right is correct. Do people think we come down on that? This is like a core yeah. piece of this book. Is that the split uh, from the right? Yeah. When I was putting up the gambit earlier, that's a that's a question that I think should bother you if, if you accept it. Because I do accept it. And, and it should bother you. You know, it's like, it's kind of like, it, this reminds me so much of the way that there are like splits within like, I don't know, forgive me for abstractifying this too much, but within like, uh, like identity politics and stuff like that. And you have people that are insufficiently, you might say intersectional. You have people that only kind of care about the hegemonic kind of broad, let's say identity to simplify it. And then you have people that are a bit more, forward-minded and want like a broader like approach that includes subordinating some of your own some of your own chauvinisms in order for like a broader form of freedom and it's a hard sell you can't really get everyone on board like because people (laughs) you know bourgeois freedom is has some zero-sum elements that people are loath to let go of how would i put it like this we shouldn't split from the right but the right should split from us so, so like, like if the Corbinites pushed the Blairites out of the party and all the coalitionists. Yeah, like not in a way like you're actually kicking them out, but politically <laughs> they leave in dribs and drabs and the left is the hegemony of the party. Like mass demoralizing the right. Yeah, but maintaining your support. I, yeah, I think that's like the ideal way to do it. But I think in the historical context of the SPD, there was the war going on and... It would have been difficult to justify staying in that party. Now, maybe they would have had more mass support, but I guess it's kind of like my concern too, especially more like with the Democrats, is that there is kind of this uh, subsumption effect with mm-hmm. radical Paul and the Democratic Party that 
I don't know if it would apply in other countries, but that's my fear is that like, how far are you willing to put up with the right, especially when the right hold power in your party, you know, how long do you, how long do you set that out? You know what I mean? It seems to me the right has an obvious home team advantage. The right is, you know, they're like defending the status quo. They have the backing of the state. They have the backing of the bourgeoisie in a way that a good Marxist should have alienated them. There's something, and maybe it's just the American context. So something that seems implausible to me about actually getting to mass demoralize and, and alienate them out of the party, out of like a big, t- out of like a bigger tent party. Well, there's no it's, place for them to go in an American context. The, right. the, libertar- the Libertarian Party. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's totally a real party. There's only two electoral genders allowed in America. That's just how it is. But, you know, but the, this is the thing, though. We always make the thing, like, that's a huge difference with Europe. But the coalition system means that it pretty much sorts the same way most of the time there, too. That's yeah, true. That, that's that's true. true. Particularly well, true not, about not really. Britain. Yeah, not, well, Britain's got first past the polls, so it's... So it's like America. It's like a hybrid. Like the only reason why you've got different parties in Britain really is because of nationalism in Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland. They're the only places where there are actual national parties. Where they function like left parties to the Tories. Yeah. And the Lib Dem, they exist essentially in university towns for people who are educated enough not to be a Tory, but actually don't give a shit about the working class. The Lib Dems are particularly weird, right? Because they're like basically a mixture of social democrats and the libertarian party. And if you were speaking American, they're like Tories and right of the Labour Party. That's what they are. I'm 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 aware of that now, but I'm talking about historical origins. Is there the Liberal Party plus plus this plus a social democratic split off of the Labour Party? That's why they're called the Liberal Democrats and not just the Liberal Party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So originally the Liberals would have been the Bourgeoisie Party and the right. Tories would have been the Landed Gentry Party. And that, then they lost power in like in the 1920s or with the rise of Labour. The Lib Dems got, the Liberals at the time got decimated. The Labour Party came up. Essentially, the Bourgeoisie went in behind the Tory Party. And then it was in the 80s when there was a split from the Michael Foots Labour Party, I think, the Social Democratic Party, and they ended up joining forces with the Liberals. The Liberals, they're a really weird party. But, they, they, you know, I think in most European countries, it, there's not a monolithic two parties. There tends to be two large parties, but many small parties that probably make up a third of the electorate. That's true, but, that's, you, but you still end up with, the two, with, with, with two coalitions. Yes. I mean, at least yeah, in but, Germany. I think Italy and Spain are a little different. Well, I think even that more wiggle room for people who are dissident of those two major parties, whereas in America, electorally, you have no, you have nowhere to go. Like you, right, that, yeah, that's true. I mean, if you see like France, you can, you can act, uh, or even a place like Israel, for example, you can see a major party that's traditionally strong completely dissolve and fall apart. You can't imagine that in America since the Civil War. Like it's happened, but it happens happens since like eighteen fifty five. I mean, like. It's been forever. On this episode, you heard the theme tune 
the Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. Please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats. Thank you.